Hello, I'm Sam Amon, and this is the 35th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing Turkestan and Bolshevism in 1918. begin, did you know that we have a Patreon? And if you sign up now, you can listen to this and all future episodes before anyone else. You'll also get access to awesome perks such as book reviews, our monthly history club, where we discuss all things, books, articles, podcasts, etc. Your name read at the end of every episode and other cool perks. Your support will go towards making this channel better and enable us to start paying independent researchers to help us with our episodes. So please join now. And now, on to making history. First, are you vaccinated? If you're not vaccinated, go get vaccinated. Right now, I think Piffer and Mordina have approved vaccinations for children under 12. If you've been vaccinated, go help your friends, your family, your neighbors get vaccinated. If they've been vaccinated, see what you can do for your community. You know, could you call your mayor and help set up vaccination stations? Could you call your work and see if you can organize a vaccination day? Just do whatever you can to help make sure everyone is vaccinated, because the sooner everyone gets vaccinated, the sooner... Second, we need to ramp up the campaign to kill the filibuster. We've wasted too much time trying to accommodate people like Manchin and McConnell. Indivisible just released a one-pager on why the filibuster needs to be killed, not reformed. Um, and we'll share that link in the description. But the bottom line is that the Republicans are not a functioning political party. They are a fascist authoritarian power party with the power to destroy any attempt to improve our lives in the United States. We need to take away the filibuster because this is their main weapon against us, the people of the United States. And if we get rid of the filibuster, it opens up a path to enable us to pass Medicare for all, to forgive student debt, uh, to pass a Green Deal, to pass real immigration reform. None of that can happen as long as the filibuster exists. So please call your representatives and tell them enough is enough. We've tried to work with the Republicans. That failed. We try to rely on people within the Democratic Party to do the right thing. That failed. We need to go on the offensive. We need to get rid of the filibuster. And we need to pass bills that will change people's lives in the United States for the better. Yesterday, the infrastructure bill was passed, which is great. But the vote on the Build Back Better initiative has been delayed for later this month. The Build Back Better bill includes the following. Universal preschool for children, meaning that families can use publicly funded preschools or private preschools. Free community college for two years nationwide. Expanded Medicare and Medicaid to cover vision, hearing, and dental. Lower prescription drug costs. So Build Back Better would take away bid farmers' power over drug prices and give it back to Medicare. Tax cuts for families with children and child support. This would increase the child tax credit from $2,000 to $3,000 for children 6 and older and $3,600 for people under 6. The credit would come in monthly checks to help with the cost of raising children. 12 weeks paid family leave after adopting or giving birth to a child nationwide and three days guaranteed off for bereavement. It's going to include housing investments. So Build Back Better would invest in the production, preservation, and retrofitting of more than a million affordable rental housing units and 500,000 homes for low- and middle-income aspiring home buyers, as well as increase rental assistance agreements. Unfortunately, it does not include a path to citizenship, which is what we were hoping. It also doesn't include anything that could be called a Green New Deal. So it's not everything we would want, but it still contains a lot of provisions that would be beneficial to the American people. 
and our government needs to know that we support this bill and all future efforts to ease the burden of living in America in her current state. So please call your representatives, call them, email them, tweet them, go to their offices, go to their home offices, you know, do whatever you can to talk to them and tell them that this bill would change our lives for the better and remind them that this is what we elected them to do. Like We came out last year in November because Biden ran on initiatives like this. We're expecting them to pass these initiatives. Speaking of immigration, like I said, right now, the Build Back Better doesn't include any immigration reform measures, but that doesn't mean it has to stay that way. We need representatives to know that we expect them to include a path of citizenship for the 11 million undocumented families, workers, and people currently living in the United States. These are people that you work with, people you know, people you interact with on a daily basis. They're your teachers, your store clerks, your software developers, your family members, your friends. They've already lived in the United States for years, some of them for decades. They are already citizens of the United States. It's all but a legal status. The, literally, the only difference between you and me, who are U.S. citizens, and an undocumented person, is that they don't have the legal protections that we have. So, like, ICE can deport them at any time. ICE can shove them in cages and not feed them, not torture them, let them get COVID, right? This is what ICE is doing on the border. They can't take the advantage of many of the benefits for citizenship, even though they do pay taxes in one way or another. And if we were to give them citizenship, they would be able to pursue dreams that they can't pursue now. And so by pursuing their dreams, they're able to give back to the community. They can't fathom what kind of benefit that's going to provide us. But again, like many of them have lived here for years. This is their home. If we grant them citizenship, we're guaranteeing that they can't be taken from their homes. If you want to take a more active stance on immigration, please look at the many branches of Never Again, the Illinois Immigration Rights, Mehende, the branches of Mate the Road, Racism, and others. They are organizing different actions almost every day of the week, and they've been doing that for months. So please reach out to them if you're interested. And then finally, the Republicans in Texas are taking another page from the Nazi Bible and have proposed a list of 850 books they want banned from schools. These books are about LGBTQ life and rights, the lives and struggles of people and communities of color, books that talk about human rights and civil rights, including LGBT and women's rights, because God forbid children learn about their rights and learn about civil disobedience. Books that talk about abortions, as well as books about sexual education. According to analysis conducted by Book Riot, about 50% LGBTQ-focused, and out of that 50%, 14% are focused on trans experiences and lives specifically. 8% are race-focused, 14% are sex education-focused, and 15% fall into a missed category. We will provide a link to the full list of books being targeted in the description. While it is tempting to look at this long list of books and dismiss it as political theater, Texan stupidity, and just plain silly, it's not. This is the beginning of a new phase in Republican fascism, and actually it really started with 1619 Project. This is the next step, and if we don't stand against this loudly and powerfully in solidarity with the people being targeted, it won't end here. I don't believe history repeats itself, and I do think that we need to have nuance when we're just like, ah, Nazis, but I do believe that history rhymes and patterns shouldn't be ignored. When the Nazis implemented their reign of terror, they went against their political opponents, so social democrats, communists, anyone that wasn't a fascist. They went after the disabled and mentally ill. They went after the Roma and Jewish peoples of Germany, and to a lesser extent, the, the Polish people. And they went after the LGBT community. In 1933, the Nazis raided the institution of sexology and burned important work on LGBT lives and biology, including trans people. So the fact that the Republicans have also chosen to target LGBT people, as well as people of color, should make anyone pause. Combine that with their increased attack against abortion and women's rights, and it should be clear that this isn't hysteria. 
They are following a playbook that leads to mass slaughter and authoritarianism. And one way to stand against them is to say no to their fear mongering, right? So we're pressuring our, our representatives to pass bills that are going to make people's lives better, which they're against. They don't want to make people's lives better. So that's one part of our stand against them. The other part of the stand is going to demonstrations, is going to school boards, is going to protests, you know, is listening to people in the community who are being targeted and supporting them. So that's another way. And now we have this attack on books and, and just access to education. How do we stand against that? One, just buy the books, right? Buy the books on the list. Ask your library to carry the books. Send the books to your friends, families, and neighbors, especially if they're in Texas right now. Talk about these books on social media, on YouTube, on TikTok, etc. Be loud and proud about your love and support of these books and these authors and these communities that these books represent. The Republicans are trying to control education. They may have power over the classrooms, but they don't have power in your homes. And honestly, children are going to find this on the internet anyway, right? So you want to take a stand because you're, you want your kids to know that you support their right to learn about who they are, about their country, about their neighbors. Speaking of classrooms, support the teachers who continue to assign and teach these books. Go to school boards and tell them that you want these books to continue to be taught, that you want your kids to know about civil rights and about sex education and about LGBT and people of color. See if there are after-school activities you can help organize around talking about these topics. If you live in Texas specifically, definitely call your school boards and announce this list of banned books. Call your representatives and announce this list. Tell your school boards and your representatives that you expect to see these books in classrooms, that you expect your children to talk about basic human rights and civil rights and the struggle of people of color and the people of the LGBT community have gone through, and that you refuse to bend to fascist fear-mongering. If you're not in Texas, check to see if there is some person who is proposing a similar list or proposing that they should follow Texas's um, example. Call your representatives, call your school boards, and tell them you don't want to become another Texas. I know there are several states that are considering similar lists. We have to prevent those, those lists from ever being announced. And the way we do that is that we stand up now in support of um, these books and these authors. This latest attempt by the Republicans to hide the truth reminds me of a quote from the HBO series Chernobyl, which I highly recommend. And there's a specific line that I really love. When truth offends, we lie and lie until we can no longer remember it is, it is even there. But it is still there. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. For most of our existence as a country, the United States has tried to lie about its role in genocides, slavery, and oppression of anyone not white enough, not straight enough, not Christian enough. And most of our existence as a country, the people who are targeted and tortured and killed have refused to remain silent. We, and by we I'm specifically talking about white people here, have to decide which side we want to be on in this current version of that struggle. Do we want to lie once again in a futile attempt to hide the truth? Or are we brave enough to finally embrace the truth about our country and deal with the reckoning that would come with it, and in the process, open the doorway for a new and better future for all people? And now, on to Turkestan and Bolshevism in 1918. For this episode, we're going to leave the Alash Orda in the steppe with their Bolshevik and white movement problem and return to the Jadids in Turkestan. If we remember, things were not going well for the Jadids. In early 1918, the Tashkent Soviet strangled the Khotan government before it could breathe. The Bukharin and Kievan emirs showed no interest in reform. Famine swept the land and the Basmachi were organizing themselves in the Fergana. The Jadids themselves were on the run without any real power and the Bolsheviks were determined to spread communism into the region. Part 1. Enter Pyotr Kobozev.
Lenin understood that the first step in regaining control over Turkestan was to settle the dispute between the indigenous peoples and the settlers. While the Bolsheviks negotiated with the Alash Orda in the Kazakh steppes, and the Czech Legion made their way to Vladivostok, the Bolsheviks appointed Pyotr Kobozev as Plenipotentiary Commissioner for Turkestan. Kobozev is an interesting figure of the Russian Civil War. He was born on August 4, 1878, to a Moscow railroad employee, but fell in love with theology and attended the Moscow Seminary. He either left, or was expelled for taking part in a student uprising, and attended the Moscow Secondary School of Ivan Findler. He frequented Marxist circles and joined the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party in 1898 while attending the, the Moscow Higher Technical School before being expelled once again for taking part in a student strike. He remained involved in the Marxist and communist circles, making it almost impossible to find work. In 1915, he moved to Orenburg, where he worked as a railroad engineer and leader of the city's Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. During the February Revolution, he organized an agitation train along the Orenburg Tashkent route, urging for support of the Bolsheviks. He would have been the commissar of the Tashkent Railroad if the provisional government had not blocked his appointment. Instead, he was appointed the chief inspector over the educational institutions of the Ministry of Transport. Then, the October Revolution happened. Adaman Alexander Dutov took advantage of the revolution to claim power in the Orenburg region, which the Bolsheviks opposed. Kobozev was appointed the extraordinary commissar for the resistance to Dutov's counter-revolution. He spent the rest of 1917 planning an assault on Dutov's forces, reclaiming the city of Orenburg in January 1918. It is said he drove one of the armored trains during the assault himself. After he reclaimed Orenburg, Kobozev was sent to Baku to nationalize the local oil industry. With 200 million rubles, he was able to prop up the Bolsheviks in Orenburg, Baku, and Tashkent, successfully re-establishing the oil flow to Russia. In early 1918, Lenin sent a telegram to the Tashkent Soviets announcing the arrival of Kobozev and two members of the People's Commissariat of Nationalities in Tashkent. One of his travel companions was Arif Klebleyev, a former member of the Kokhan autonomy. In fact, he was the one who sent a telegram to the Tashkent Soviet asking they recognize the Kokhan autonomy as a legal authority in Turkestan. Now he is working with the Soviets. Lenin's telegram read, quote, we are sending you to Tashkent two comrades, members of the Tatar Baskir Committee of the People's Commissariat for Nationalities Affairs, Ibrahimov and Trebyev. The latter is maybe already known to you as a former supporter of the autonomous group. His appointment to this new post might startle you. I ask you, nevertheless, to let him work, forgiving his old sins. All of us here think that now, when Soviet power is getting stronger everywhere in Russia, we shouldn't fear the shadows of the past of people who only yesterday were getting mixed up with our enemies. If these people are ready to re recognize their mistakes, we should not push them away. Furthermore, we advise you to attract to political work even adherents of Kerensky from the natives if they are ready to serve Soviet power. The latter only gains from it, and there is nothing to be afraid of in the shadows of the past. Quote is from Adib Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. Kovozev arrived in April 1918 and made the following changes. First, he forced the inclusion of indigenous peoples in governing bodies, including the 5th Congress of Soviets that convened in Tashkent on April 21, 1918. He also elected himself as chair of the Presidium during the Congress. During the same Congress, he created the Central Executive Committee of Turkestan as a supreme authority in the region. He ensured that nine of its 36 members were Muslims. Second, he proclaimed a general amnesty for everyone involved with the Kokhan government. Third, he created the Communist Party in Turkestan, KPT, in June 1918. By 1920, it would consist of 57,000 members. Fourth, he forced a re-election to the Tashkent Soviet, winning a, quote, 
brilliant victory of ours in the elections to Tashkent's proletarian parliament has decisively crushed the, the hydra of reaction. White Muslim turbans have grown noticeably in the ranks of the Tashkent parliament, attaining a third of all seats. Again, quote is from Dr. Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. Part 2. The Rise of Jadadids The Jadids were not enthused at first. Between the bloodbath that followed the Russian Revolution and the overthrow of the Kokan autonomy, they had little reason to trust the Bolsheviks. Abdurah Fitchat would write in 1917, quote, Russia has seen disaster upon disaster since the February transformation, and now a new calamity has raised its head, that of the Bolsheviks. Rosie Yunus, another Jadid, would write about the Tashkent Soviet, quote, Muslims have not seen a kopet's worth of good from the freedom, i.e. the revolution. On the contrary, we are experiencing times worse than those of Nicholas. Both quotes are from Dr. Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. For a moment, they looked to the Ottoman Empire as a source of salvation, and Gozi Yunus even traveled to Istanbul to petition the Ministry of War. When the Ottoman Empire was defeated during the World War, the world lost the last independent Muslim empire, and the Jadids were forced to turn internally and to their neighbors for support. The Jadids used their new political power to first punish their old enemies, the ulama. They used the KPT in Old City Tashkent to take land from the ulama, and on March 21st, 1918, the commissar of the Old City shut down the ulamo Jamiati, which is or their political party, and their journal Al-Izol, and took its property. For the next two years, the Bolsheviks would requisition lands once owned by the ulama on behalf of the new method school started by the Jadids and their theatrical groups, empowering one set of, indig of indigenous people over another. The Jadids also targeted the ulama's control over the waqf. A waqf is a religious donation of land, money, or an item that is meant to be given back to the community, and it's meant to benefit the community for, I think it's all time. In Turkestan at this point, the ulama oversaw the acceptance of the waqf and then the distribution. And so the Jadids tried to take this away from the ulama so that they would be in control of all this wealth and all this land, and they could donate it to causes that they thought were worthy. So the ulama were using it to continue the traditional studies of the Quran, and the Jadids wanted to use it to support modernizing methods of education, modernizing areas of community. Because again, the Jadids, we should remember, they are Islamic, and they are thinking of a modern Islam. The ulama, for their part, either found refuge with the more conservative elements of the society, they joined the Basmachi, or they attempted to win the Bolshevik support by proclaiming that socialism had roots in Islam, and that they are actually the true anti-capitalist sect, whereas the Jadids, who were inspired by, quote-unquote, the West, they were inspired by the Ottoman Empire, and they were inspired by England, to a certain extent, they were Western modernizers, and they were to bring capitalism to Turkestan. Uh, this kind of fell on deaf ears, though. The Muslims of Turkestan were granted the rights to use firearms, and despite Kobozev's efforts, the old dynamics returned to the city. The newer settlements remained the stronghold of the Russian settlers, while the indigenous people's power was confined to the old city. The Jadids recruited Ottoman POWs to serve as teachers, where they could create clubs and secret societies. Some of these clubs were nationalistic, other were just simply social gatherings, but the Ottoman POWs from 1918 to 1920 become a core feature of Turkestan society as the indigenous peoples try to survive the tumultuous end of the decade. Part 3. Turar Riskulo The opening of the political world attracted other activists who did not support the Jadid's version of reform. The Jadid's got their start in political activism via the arts and education. 
This new cadre of politicians entered politics through the radicalization of the famine and violence against Muslim peasants and nomads, and spoke the language of Bolshevism and the revolution. Many of these new politicians were younger than the Jadids and had gone through the Russian native schools, giving them the benefit of speaking fluent Russian, and this is similar to the members of the Alash Orda. Few had ever taken part in the Islamic reform championed by the Jadids. One of these men, a fascinating person, was Tuar Ristulov. He was born in Semerechi to a Tazak family in 1894. He went to a Russian native school and worked for a Russian lawyer, and then went to agriculture school in Pishpek. In October 1916, he went to the Tashkent Normal School, and then the Russian Revolution happened. Up to this point, he had no public life, but in 1917, he returned to his hometown and founded the Union of Revolutionary Tazak Youth. In 1918, he returned to Tashkent and was named Turkestan's Commissar for Health. In 1918... Ristolov was reporting to the Turkestan Sovnarkom about the situation in a small subdivision where 300,000 Kazakhs died from starvation. But the settlers still levied an additional tax of 5 million rubles from the survivors. Ristolov called this what it was, colonial exploitation. This inspired an ideology of communistic anti-colonialism within Ristolov. And we'll talk about the, um, the details of this ideology later in the series because he develops it between 1918 and 1919, but basically this quote kind of describes where he's coming from. In May 1920, Tuar wrote, quote, In Turkestan, as in the entire colonial East, two dominant groups have existed and continue to exist in the social struggle, the oppressed, exploited colonial natives, and European capital. Imperial powers sent their best exploiters and functionaries to the colonies, people who like to think that even a worker is a representative of a higher culture than the natives, a so-called culture trader, Adib Khalid's book, Central Asia. For Tular, the communist revolution was synonymous with anti-imperialism in all its forms. And yet, if the revolution could not throw off the shackles of imperialism, then it was a failed revolution. And again, we'll talk about this development and how the Bolsheviks re- responded to it in later episodes. But it brings up a really important question. He kind of becomes the center of this important question. What did communism actually mean to the indigenous people of Central Asia? And what did it mean to the Bolsheviks? Part 5. A revolutionary example for the Muslim world. For the Jadids, Bolshevism was a revolutionary force they could use to achieve modernization. Even though they adopted Bolshevik language, they could not map the Bolshevik obsession with class to their own society. Instead, they translated class warfare into anti-colonialism, conflating Islam, nationalism, and revolution into a singular vision of anti-imperialism with their em- enemies, including the ulama, the emirs, and the British Empire. Fitrat, who had been a, f- a great supporter of England at one time, even went so far as to write that India's efforts to overthrow Britain's rule was, quote, as great a duty as saving the pages of the Quran from being trampled by an animal, a worry as great as that of driving a pig out of a mosque. A quote is from Dr. Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. The Jadids wanted to create a Turkestan that was Muslim, nationalistic, and revolutionary, free of settler dominance and source of revolution for the Muslim world. They discovered that their belief in women liberation, and we can talk about what that actually meant in later episodes, economic redistribution, and power of the people, or proletariat, to use the Bolshevik language, was shared by the Bolsheviks. Additionally, the Bolsheviks had the power to do what the the Jadids could not, overthrow the settlers and the emirs just as they overthrew the Tsar and the aristocracy of Russia. In 1919, the first Congress of Muslim Communists passed the following resolution, quote, 
to the revolutionary proletariat of the east of turkey india persia afghanistan kiva bukhara china to all to all to all we the muslim communists of turkestan gathered together at our first regional conferences in Tashkent, send you our fraternal greeting we who are free to you who are oppressed we wait impatiently for the time when you will follow our example and take control in your own hands in the hands of local soviets of workers and peasant deputies we hope soon to come soldier to shoulder with you in our struggle with the yoke of world capitalism manifested in the East in the form of English suffocation of the, the native peoples. This quote is from Dr. Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan. The Jadid's embrace of an anti-colonial revolution coincided with Afghanistan defeating the British in 1919, the wave of Ottoman POWs now free to roam Turkestan, as well as an influx of Indian activists via Afghanistan. The Afghan Khan Amanullah looked to the Soviets for support against the British return. For their part, the Bolsheviks helped establish a modern army in Afghanistan and allowed Afghanistan to open a consulate in Tashkent. Their relationship would be strained at times. As the Bolsheviks feared, Afghan intervention in favor of the Bukharan Amir, or as Afghanistan made no secret its desire to expand its influence into the rest of Central Asia. So it was definitely one of those, you're my ally for now, but I can turn on you in any minute type of relationship. Um, the Indian activists, as well as many Ottoman expats, traveled through Afghanistan and into Turkestan to meet with Bolsheviks, who represented an anti-colonial revolution about to overtake the world. Satir Bezad Ramid, an Anatolian representative, would write in 1920 that, quote, Turkestan is the path to liberation of the East, and the Red Soviets are the way to our natural and human rights. From now on, Turkestan and Tehran will live only under the Red Soviet banner. Quote is from Dr. Talib's book, Making Uzbekistan. Yet despite all of this revolutionary activity, these, ever, these efforts never materialized into an organized revolution. Instead, many hopeful revolutionaries came together, talked, and started nascent organizations, but were never able to go further than that. If the Jadids believed they were the leaders of a Muslim revolution, what did the Bolsheviks believe? Back in 1917, the Bolsheviks were very anti-colonial and Muslim-friendly, claiming, quote, all you whose mosques and shrines have been destroyed, whose faith and customs have been violated by the czars and oppressors of Russia. Henceforth, your beliefs and customs, your national and cultural institutions are declared free and inviolable. Build your national life freely and without hindrance. Quote is from Dr. Talib's book, Making Uzbekistan. I don't think this changed as they marched into 1918, but their understanding of what Turkestan needed conflicted with what the Jadids and Alash Orda were fighting for. The Bolshevik thought in terms of class and industry, and for them, nationalism was the form class took in the colonies. So while they initially supported nationalistic projects, they always intended for nationalism to be a stepping stone to true communism. But for the Jadids and Alash Orda, nationalism was the end goal. The Bolsheviks failed to win the Alash Orda's trust and support, and they were determined not to make the same mistake in Turkestan. But what made Turkestan so important for the Bolsheviks? There is an ideological and an economic reason. Ideologically, the Bolsheviks believed that converting Turkestan to communism would open the door for further communist expansion into the East. As Lenin argued in November 1919, quote, It is no exaggeration to say that the establishment of proper relations with the peoples of Turkestan is now of immense world historic importance for the Russian Socialist Federated Soviet Republic. For the whole of Asia and for all the colonies of the world, for thousands and millions of people, the attitude of the Soviet worker-peasant republic to the weak and here thereto oppressed peoples is of very practical significance. This was particularly appealing as communist expansion floundered in the West. 
Trotsky would argue that, quote, the road to revolution in Paris and London lay via the towns of Afghanistan, the Punjab, and Bengal. They legitimately believed that, communis- that communism would flounder if it didn't get a foothold outside of Russia, and so they turned to the peoples the Tsar once oppressed. As they made overtures to the Jadids and the Alash Orda, Lenin stressed the importance of not upsetting the indigenous peoples and to put Russian settlers in their place before they ruined everything. Economically, the Soviets needed material and economic resources, especially cotton. The Russia the Soviets inherited was a stunted version of the Tsarist Russia. No longer could they count on the economic and material resources of their western colonies, and now the last lands of the steppe and Turkestan were at risk of escaping Russian control. The Commissar for Trade and Industry, L.B. Krasin, wrote, quote, The recent reunion of Turkestan presents the opportunity for making broad use of the region as well as of countries neighboring it. For the export of cotton, rice, dry fruits, and other goods necessary, not only for the internal markets of Russia, but also for its external trade. All these quotes are from Dr. Talid's book, Making Uzbekistan. The challenge was benefiting from Turkestan's resources without invoking the greed and bad memories of the czars. By the end of 1918, the Jadids and Bolsheviks were working together to rebuild a functioning government in Turkestan, and yet they both had two very different clashing visions for Turkestan's future. The Jadids entered 1919 needing to settle their differences with the Bolsheviks or risk the fate of the Alash Orda, a modernizing movement marginalized by its own allies and the Civil War. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can listen to our full catalog on our website www.samswarroom.com as well as our Spotify and iTunes. Please subscribe and leave a review. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at AOA Warfare and on Instagram which is just Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Please join our Patreon, as I have a lot of big plans for this podcast in 2021 and beyond, and I can't do it without your support. Until next time, get your vaccine, practice social distancing, wash your hands, and stay safe.